Hey, welcome to January Man, the January Boys fan cast. I'm a piece of wood. And I'm a drift. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk about the third official episode in the series, uh, January Boys, on BBC Four. Um, quite a wild ride, this one. But but first, uh, how was your Halloween? I had a lovely Halloween where basically I drifted in amongst the trees that surrounded trick-or-treaters, and every once in a while they'd see a glimpse of my glowing yellow eyes, but they could never make clear the outline of uh, my ever-shifting body shape. Oh, that sounds lovely. I thought so. Yeah, that sounds better than what I did. Oh, how did you spend Halloween? I can never speak of it again. That's right, I asked you earlier today, and... My lips are sealed. That's also what you said. Yeah, can't do it anymore. Oh, well. Sorry, listeners. But you don't want to know. No, no. No. You yeah, you don't. But what you do want to know about is episode 3 of the January Boys series. This episode starts off with Jeb and Joe in the back of one of the rooms uh where the journalism club, the local school newspaper meets every day after school. And fans of the movies know that this is, of course, the fly on the wall, the school paper, and that they and you prob and you probably have an inkling we're gonna be introduced to Treasure Weekly. And you'd be right. Treasure Weekly, of course, played by Lucy Liu in the beginning of the series, is um very, very intently talking about the a responsibility of a journalist and the integrity that journalism is supposed to have and how she is disgusted by cable news. And while that's happening, Joe, who seems to just be along for the ride, is trying to get Jeb's attention, and Jeb is swatting him off, saying, listen, man, this is really important. This is what our country is all about. Truth, justice, and uh, freedom of the press. And he just doesn't want to pay attention to Joe's uh, admittedly very funny practical joke where he makes a pencil look like a piece of rubber. It's really a highlight of the scene, and yet Jeb remains stoic. So you already know that Jeb is taking this really seriously, as he tends to do with the subjects that he becomes passionate about. Yeah. Um, as we continue to see from Jeb Bush, he does not take his interests lightly. Uh, he is a go-getter, and, um, I mean, it's Jeb with an exclamation mark for a reason, you know? And Joe, while lovable and charismatic, is admittedly kind of a slacker, and that's just the way he is. That's just the way Joe Biden has always been. He just gets things kind of handed to him. I mean, he wouldn't have been vice president of the United States if it weren't for Obama's kind, loving, fatherly hand. And so... We're seeing these tensions play out during the kind of introductory meeting for the club, and then they're kind of dismissed, but since Jeb and Joe are newcomers, Treasure Weekly takes them aside, and she starts to lay down kind of what's going to be expected of them in the journalism club. And Jeb's just eating it up. She says, look, you're going to have to be gonzo. You're going to have to go deep. You're going to have to go undercover sometimes, okay? 
you're going to have to get the story when no one else can. Do you have a story in mind? And of course they say no. And when you're a journalist, especially a hard news journalist, like she wants them to be, they're just going to assign something to you. And you know what? You're going to have to do it. Because when your editor-in-chief tells you something, you listen. When your editor-in-chief tells you to jump, you say, where are my moon shoes? And, um... Yeah, so she assigns them the souls of Stolas Bit. There's a new gang in town. We were introduced to them in the first episode. And she wants them to try to figure out what they're all about. Ask questions. Who do they talk with? Who do they consort with? What are their members? Are they dangerous? What's the deal? Because inquiring minds want to know. And that's the job of a newspaper, is to give unbiased opinions wait, is to give unbiased facts about what's going on in your community and in your nation. And listeners, Jeb Bush was on the case. Jeb stands right up. He was already standing, so he stands on top of Treasure Weekly's desk in his sort of, oh, captain, my captain moment. And he's like, I will infiltrate this gang of literate bikers and I will find out what they're up to. What's their beat? What are they reading? What are they pushing over in the street? What are they doing to make ends meet? Whatever these things are, of they, I will not repeat. What do they wear upon their feet? How do they dance upon the street? Hey, hey, ho, ho. Skeet, 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 skeet. And I think that's one of the most dramatic speeches in the entirety of the January Boys franchise. Um, Eric Andre's delivery there, it's its just, uh, you can't compare it to anything, you know? It's incomp... It's, it's very good. I've tried comparing it to several things, and it just doesn't work. Like, what if I told you I tried to compare it to A Summer's Day? No, I can't. That falls apart immediately. How about to a rose? No. Fuck that shit. If we should compare this to, say, a beautiful walk in the moonlight. You'd call me on that tripe immediately. It's It can't be compared. Incomparable. So Treasure Weekly is sold through this impromptu bit of eloquence and speechifying, and she's like... Hey, kid, I know you got the goods. Show up with the story on my desk next week, and I get you on that byline. Which is really not much of a promise, because if he wrote it, then yeah, you'd get the byline. But she says it very convincingly. And of course, Jeb doesn't really know what what writing's all about yet. And he's not unionized, so they're probably going to change his lead. So nevertheless, he's sold. And then we get a classy star wipe into the next scene. And the next scene is him putting on a leather jacket, going up, putting on his biker gloves that he steals from Joe's uh, locker, and saying, hey guys, hey, what's up? And this is outside of, of course, Anton's uh, bookshop and cafe. That's kind of the hangout for the souls of Stolas. They park their hogs outside. And their motorcycles as well. Yeah, but they also do, like, organic farming and farm-to-table produce. A lot of the members of the Souls of Stolas are uh, members of the FFA, the Future Farmers of America, in this small town, which, um, I mean, it's right by the beach, so you know that the soil's fertile, especially in rural Montana. So they got their hogs, 
tied up by ropes to their parked to their parked motorcycles and they're like leaning against the walls and flipping through like books of Immanuel Kant and Ayn Rand and what have you. Um, I think if I'm remembering correctly, and I did just watch the episode today, so I am, uh, Rupert Grint, who plays Stevie King, is reading through Here and Hereafter by Ruth Montgomery, which is about the afterlife and uh, communing with and uh, living a life that matters. And the souls of Stolas are a little suspicious at first because they're a pretty insular gang. They're tight with each other, but they don't trust outsiders easily. But Jeb is wearing a leather jacket. So he must know what's good. He does not ride a motorcycle. He actually shows up on a big wheel and um, has to uh, convince them that he's going to get a motorcycle eventually. He just doesn't have his license yet. And so they let him ride with them for a little bit. But he doesn't have his back patches yet. You know, he's not going to get his tags until after he proves his worth. And so he has to do that, you know. And they get up real close to him after they hang out for a couple of days. Look right in his face. Leer into his ear and say, You are going to have to read Ulysses by James Joyce. And you're going to have to write 80-page analysis in a week. And then we get another beautiful star wipe, and it's Jeb crying. Uh, Like so many grad students and students of literature have in the past, um, just weeping horrendous tears of confusion while holding a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses. He's been, He's in the bathroom, he's flipping through the pages as he cries, just squinting at it, trying to discern anything, and it's just not coming together, and he looks up and he sees himself in the mirror, and he, he's revolted by the sight of himself holding this book in this leather jacket, and he just punches the mirror and it breaks into a bunch of pieces, and then he goes, oh, it's a fragmented narrative. And that's when he starts to turn around. The next couple of scenes are actually a montage of him running up and down some steps in a hoodie, reading the book. It's very dangerous. He almost hits a few people. Joe Joe has to, like, push him out of the way of people. who He's also running beside him because he promised. He promised to stand by him. They love each other. And, God damn it, that's what love's about. Joe's going to stand by his man, even as that man is jogging into hazardous places and not paying attention to the world around him. Also, Jeb's hand is continuously bleeding through these because he's punched a mirror and severely damaged uh, the soft, tender flesh of his little riderly paw there. And those of you who uh, know the series very well know that this is foreshadowing to... uh the turn in Jeb's story where he is diagnosed with tuberculosis. So the creators have a plan moving forward, and it's nice to see this attention to detail carried out. But, like, you see Joe, like, bandaging the hand a little bit and changing the bandages out as the others get soaked. And this whole time, Jeb is, like, thoroughly just into the book. And at the end, he reaches the last page, and he just flips it closed and closes it and throws the book over his shoulder, hitting a bystander. 
but he just puts his sunglasses on and is just just kind of walks off. And then, bam, hard cut. He's throwing this book report down on one of the tables uh, at Anton's. Uh, and Stevie King's looking it over. He skims it, and he goes, Oh, nice. Oh, wow, nice use of alliteration in the thesis statement. I really appreciate that. And he looks over him at his big, thick glasses. And he says in that very well-known Rupert Grant way, You done damn good, kid. You done real good. And um, then we see a sack go over Jeb's head. So And then and it cuts to a hard commercial break. The show's been going on for a good 15 minutes with no cuts. So this is kind of like, oh, yeah, we've been lulled into a false sense of security. But they do need commercial breaks. And so... Your advertisement here. And then we're back, and the and the uh, bag comes off of Jeb's head, and we're in the Souls of Stolas secret hideout. We find out later that it's actually down by the mines underneath the ocean, the beach mines, because there's no more, there's no safer place to dig deep than right underneath the beach. Sand is the sturdiest thing to dig underneath. Yeah, so he's in this cave that's lit by, like, glowworms and phosphorescent animals. Like, cats. It's weird. Like, you'd think they'd be phosphorescent fish or, like, weird cave lizards or anything, but they're actually just kind of normal animals that you'd see around the house. Yeah, like a dog walks through and it's just glowing very brightly. Um, Jeb, you know journalist that he's trying to become asks why they're glowing and um well stevie just kind of laughs and goes please and uh they move on so stevie's giving him the tour of the place he's kind of proved jeb's proven he's got got some biker some literate biker muscle under the old chrome dome so he's kind of bringing him into some confidences and telling him about some of the real secret stuff that's going on and, uh, like, some of the ceremonies that they perform in those caves. And some of the uh, genetic modification they do on house pets, which I guess, if you think about it, it's probably what happened to those poor glowing dogs and cats. And Jeb is actually, like, intrigued and... He's starting to, you can see, he's almost starting to buy into it a little. Oh, yeah, I think he buys into it 100%. And then Joe sneaks out from behind a rock when he thinks no one is looking, and he whispers into Jeb's ear, he's like, just get the story and get out. Get the story, get out of here. We'll be safe soon. And Jeb kind of snaps out of it for a second. Or so we think. And then they came come into the ceremony room. You see some carved pentagrams, along the floor of the cave, and Rupert Grint and Stevie throws in a torch she's been carrying, and they light up, and you see the pentagram and the burning fires. And in the center of it is a mass, a sort of master tome, this bound leather book. And holding that book is uh, an, an anthropomorphic owl figure, with a floating crown. I don't know how they do it. Maybe it was magnets, but it's a floating crown of um, just pure... It looks like obsidian, but it's probably some sort of magnetic 
thing, but it's a it's holding this tome is a carved statue of Stolas, Prince of Hell and Knowledge, and all around them, st- members of the Souls of Stolas in hoods with their leather jackets on start chanting cheap sordida factus lutum cheap sordida factus lutum which means dirty deeds done dirt cheap they're big fans of acdc so the cave starts to vibrate we see, and we see kind of the strange these there's like an optical illusion of the shapes of these uh the characters the the bikers and jeb and out the corner we see joe's peeking his head out around, looking into the cave. But you see kind of these opt- the, their outlines that become kind of transparent, and they kind of switch around and swirl about. And then Stevie gets up onto the podium next to the statue and asks Jeb for a sacrifice. He takes his hand, takes out a quill, stabs the hand, burns the quill, takes out some sand, puts it in the wound because they don't want it to get infected, spits in it, shakes his hand, lets the hand go, turns him around three times, turns him around counterclockwise three times, pushes him down, picks him back up, and then says, you're going to have to give up your boyfriend. And then they cut to another commercial break. Your advertisement here. And then they're back. So now things have really gotten in too deep. You know, this is a climactic moment in this case. Like, what's how deep is Jeb really going to go here? Like, he can't. Is he really willing to sacrifice his relationship with Joe just to get deeper into this thing that was just supposed to be a story anyways? Or is Jeb really getting seduced by these uh, leather-bound literates? Well, knowledge is dangerous. And as anyone knows, a man in possession of knowledge is in want of more knowledge. It's just a rule. A rule of the damned. And Joe jumps out of the rock that he's hiding behind. He jumps out of it. They put him in another rock, and he jumps out of that rock. It was actually really cool how they did it, because they did it in slow motion almost, but it was kind of that choppy slow motion. Like when you... Have you seen the Ninja Turtles movies? You know, it's like, cha-cha-cha-cha, and he jumps like that. I think that the person who directed this episode was in some way... uh, I think he knew like Ernie Reyes Jr. or something. And so they trained Joe Biden to do that through um, former Donatello's uh, very good skills of jumping. Anyway, um, they get to it eventually. It does take a bit for him to jump over there. And uh, he punches Stevie King, and he punches one of his right-hand men, he punches the left-hand man, and then he grabs Jeb and they rush out of there. And just when they think it couldn't get any worse, the cave starts to collapse. And the cops show up, both at the same time. Both cops arrive. At once. There's only two cops in this town. Which is probably how organized crime could start and 
build a whole satanic temple underneath the beach in mines that are constantly in use. Like, people work in the beach mines mining sand, which they then turn slowly into glass, which gets blown in the back of Anton's for purposes unknown. Yet. Also, there are mysteries about, like, radium and why are things glowing, and, like, they, they sell radium glass at Anton's. That, we're going to come back to that eventually, probably. Or if we forget, we forget. But it's kind of like a small thing that they're hinting at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so the cops show up and the cave collapses, and they what do they see? They see a bunch of literate teens, and nothing makes a police officer more angry than a literate teen. And so they arrest a lot of them. Specifically, Joe, who has already been in trouble with the law many, many times. He's the rooster man. Rooster man don't give fucks. And Stevie King, who they've had their eye on since he moved to this town, boy. They clap them both in irons that are attached to each other. They clamp them together and they say, you know, you're going to break the law, you're going to break the law together. You can't do the crime, do the crime time. And then one cop looks at the other cop and he goes, can I have the line again? And they keep rolling and say no. So they just continue on with the scene. Like you saw and you you saw that like Rupert Grant and uh, Joe like get kind of their tension go out of their bodies for a second when they're like, oh, maybe we're going to retake it. OK. Oh, no, we're back in. Jeb, Jeb manages to escape um, just in time. And. Yeah, so they throw him in the back of the car, and a couple of the other bikers are, like, looking at Jeb, like, guys, we gotta do something, you're initiated now, we gotta get our leader out. And more importantly, Jeb is really, wait, did I say Joe or Jeb just then? Oh, yeah, I, so they're, you might have mixed it up. Mm. So they're looking at Jeb and looking at the police car, and they're kind of hand signing back and forth because one of them speaks american sign language and the other one knows like basic code from the fbi and the cia because he read it in a book once but like they can't really communicate so eventually jeb just goes guys we got to get these guys out of there what do we do and um one of the bikers goes i've got a plan and he reaches into his pocket and very slowly pulls out the bill of rights and then from another pocket another biker reaches into that same biker's jacket. So they're reaching across and into another biker's jacket, and he pulls out the Declaration of Independence. And then a third hand appears from somewhere, because there's only two bikers there, and he pulls out the Constitution of the United States. The actual Constitution. Yeah. And they go, don't tell my Uncle Nick that I stole this. And he runs over there, and he goes, wait, 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 wait. You didn't read them their rights. And the cops were like, oh, right, right. You have the right to remain... It's like, no, 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 no. These rights. And he smacks him with the Bill of Rights and kicks them in the balls, and then they break out and start running. Luckily, he had covered himself on his face with, with the actual Constitution. So he's wearing the, the, Amer- the United States Constitution as a mask. And so um, who are they going to blame? Lady Liberty? I don't think so. And, uh, yeah, they bust out, and then it cuts to Treasure Weekly looking at the story that Jeb has handed her, and looking over her glasses at them and saying, boys, 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 this is unpublishable. 
So many spelling errors. And there's so much alliteration. Just too much alliteration. You're a you're a goddamned journalist, not an alliteraturist, and Jeb looks at her and snaps his fingers and walks out. And we have a shot of the door to the club closing after after him on Treasure Weekly and we're like, oh, and we're kind of shocked because we're like, oh, is that that we know that can't be it from her for for this, but like, oh, they were real tight in the movie, so maybe we're just setting up some tensions. Yeah, and she runs out, throws open the door, and puts all of those worries aside, and she goes, "All right, all right, you've made the front page. I'll have our copy editor look at it." And that copy editor is me, so it's fine. Yeah, fix it. Um, yeah, and that's the end of that episode. Um, and it fades to black while it's playing, uh, Yesterday's Papers by the Rolling Stones. And then we see the credits. And this has been our most thorough introduction to the Souls of Stolas. And there's a lot of intriguing things now that have been introduced. Uh, and I feel like the January Boys world has immediately been expanded after this episode. Just dogs glow, cats glow. There's a mine in this beach town known for agriculture. Like it, it's it's gotten a lot of um, it's gotten a lot roomier for our boys, and uh, the world's definitely expanded. And I think that they wanted to continue to expand. Um, but as far as episodes go, I'm not sure how I feel about this. It's kind of satanic panicky. Like I, I feel like they're not super fair to the sons of Stolas or the souls of Stolas. Um, because they're portraying them more as a cult. And, you know, what is a cult? You know, it's a group of like-minded individuals who get together and read books and talk about their feelings. Uh, Like any religion, really. So basically, it's a book club with motorcycles that also happens to uh, pledge allegiance to one of the princes of hell. I mean, what's the big deal? I I just don't think they're fair at all. Yeah, and I I do take a little issue with the title of this episode, which was The Stoles of the Souls of Stolas, and yet we don't actually see any of their kind of scarves or stoles or any winter wear at all. No. It's it's in the middle of autumn, this episode. It's, It's like right after the school year started, so I don't know what the hell they were thinking there. I mean, maybe one of them is wearing an ascot, but you can barely see it under the robe. I've looked. Yeah, you really can. You, you can hold the frame for a minute, but you just can't come to any real conclusions there. So, bit of a letdown there, bit of a, a rabbit hole. They never come back to that, so I don't really know. Uh, but otherwise, it 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 does kick down a couple of doors that are going to be entered through and exited through later in the series. Yeah, they're definitely going to go in one door and then out another door that they opened. And then they're going to walk around the building and get back in and then jump back out. Then they're going to go down the stairs into the basement, deeper down still through the cellar door that's uh, protection from the hurricanes and tornadoes that plague Montana. Dig down way deeper, find the radium mine, probably. Don't want to give away spoilers if you're watching it with us for the first time. And then they get back up. And then they walk out, and then they keep going. And then they walk down the road, then they turn around because they thought they left their keys. 
and they find out they did leave their keys and their wallet, and then they come back, and they do that in fewer than 12 episodes. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So, we're going to get to all of that soon, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed our breakdown of this episode, and the gradual emotional breakdown that we've slowly been having as this has been going on. And um, I hope that you're enjoying our gradual emotional breakdown on Twitter. Follow us at JanuaryPod. Um, we're also on Spotify now, Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, Buzzsprout, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts, Google Podcasts as well. So we're all over the place, and you can follow us on this wild downward spiral of improvisational comedy every fucking week. Because goddamn, is it tough to get myself out of bed in the morning sometimes. Um, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Is there anything you'd like to say? As always, keep January in your heart. January Man is hosted by A.V. Eichenbaum and Davis Banta with music by Brandon McKay. Today's episode is brought to you by the letter... Nah. For... Thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends, those two.